0: All right, man, I, we could just go home now. That's pretty good. No, we'll stay. Um, I'm Jonathan. Uh, I uh, work here at the church and from time to time get to preach. Um, I only mention that because someone said to me the other day, hey, I, we've been here for a couple of months. Do you ever preach? I do. Um, I'm excited to talk to y'all today. As Kyle mentioned, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about what makes Pulpit Rock tick. In a couple of weeks, we're going to launch into Acts, start reading ahead. Acts is a wild book. You should read it. Uh, but we'll get to that. Uh, this week and next week, we want to talk about what really makes our church tick. And you may say, well, why, why are we talking about that? I mean, you're a church. We know what a church is. Uh, and that's kind of true. In a lot of ways, we are like a lot of churches, Uh, But in some other ways, I think we are unlike a lot of churches and kind of unique as a church, and those are the ways that I want to talk about today and next week. And I'd love for you to understand those things that make us a little bit unique and be as excited about them as I am, um, and ultimately, I think, as excited about them as God is. So that's the goal. Let me start with an observation. I think this is universally true of humans, It is not your goals that will determine the trajectory of your life. It is your values. That's what's going to determine the trajectory of your life. Now, when I say values, I just mean by that it is the things that your heart longs for, right? My therapist talks about it this way. He says, it's what you pay attention to in every situation a thing that you see, the lens through which you look when circumstances happen to you. So one person might have a a high value on success. Another person might have a high value on being well-liked. Someone else might have a high value on freedom, or someone else might have a high value on ease, and all of us value all of those things, but for some of us, those things are at the top of the list, and those values are going to determine the trajectory of our life. Let me give you an example. Um, Towards the top of my list is this idea of teaming, uh, being on a team, collaborating with other humans. Like the idea of like a bunch of friends on an adventure together, sign me up. Like that's what I want. I value that so much. Like locking arms with others for a shared purpose. That's a high value for me. Now you can see why that's not the only reason, but you can see how that value, when I was thinking about what I wanted to do with my life, made pastoral ministry kind of an appealing thing. You could also imagine that like when I considered something, and I have great respect for people who do this, but like being a writer, I was like, ugh, that would be death to me. Not because it's an unworthy thing, but just the idea of you in a keyboard, and that's your career, I just like that would, I would not be up for that. So. this is also, by the way, I was told the first service, this is why I think the movie Hoosiers could be the greatest movie of all time. Um, if you've never seen Hoosiers, like get up now and go see it. I won't even be offended. Like just, it's that good. Uh, one person, taking me off on that. No, because like, the, like for me, I pay special attention to like these moments where people are in close relationship focused on a purpose bigger than themselves. Uh, that's really steered a lot of my life. I think values... Stuff like that really kind of determines a lot about where we go. And that's not just true with individuals. It is true with groups of people. It is true with organizations. I hope this isn't true, but if you've ever uh, had to work for an organization that values profit over everything, that has a feel to it, right? It doesn't matter what you're selling, what the product is, that has a feel to it. And I think the same principle applies to churches. Values set the trajectory more than a vision statement. I would even go so far as to say most times more than a doctrinal statement, the values of the community shape what it will become and more importantly what it will feel like to be a part of this group. That's what we want to talk about these next two weeks. Now you may say, well, you're going to talk about values. Where'd you come up with these? Uh, I didn't just think them up. We did an experiment earlier this year. Uh, We have an annual meeting with uh, all the elders at our church and all the pastors and key staff members. And we had that in January. And before the meeting, we got all those people and we said, listen, here's what we want you to do. You all have been here for a while. And that's one of the wonderful things about our church is there's a lot of longevity and leadership. So we said, you've seen a bunch of stuff. We want to ask you this question. What are the core values that you think have driven who we've become as a church, okay? So don't talk to anyone else, just like list the things that you think are core values that have shaped who we are. And so everybody did that, and then we combined all the lists, and we got together and we said, is there anything that we all had in common? And there was some stuff that was like, oh, that's way out there. But there was four things that we all had in common, four things that we all looked at and we said, gosh, like... That is the longing of our heart. That is the thing that in every moment, whenever we're facing a big decision that we're thinking about in the back of our head, that's something we think God put in us right? Like we're living out that value because we think God put it there. And those are things that we really love as leadership. And so I'd love for you to understand those things and love them as much as we do. I'm going to talk about two today that are, as Kyle said, theological in nature. Then next week, I want to talk about two things that are kind of the relational center of our church. Um, there's no big reveal here. I'm just going to put them up there. Let me hit you with the first two values. Here they are. Value number one. Jesus is the center of everything we do. Now, I know what you're saying You're a church. Of course you're, of course you're going to say Jesus, and of course we are going to say Jesus. Look, we said it. Uh, Jesus is the center of everything we do. But here's what I want you to understand about that. What we're saying is exclusive. Like Jesus is just Jesus is the center. It's not Jesus plus these other things that we really also care about. But no, it is just faith in Jesus is the center of everything that we do. Here's the second value. We are focused on joining God's kingdom work in the world. This is how we define spiritual success. We believe this is a biblical definition of what the Christian life is about, joining God's kingdom work in the world. Now, if you've been with us for any length of time, time, you know we talk about these things all the time. They're all over Scripture, but I want to take us to the book of Ephesians and look at something that Paul does with these two values. Paul frequently talks about the centrality of Jesus, and he does that in Ephesians chapter 2, but he also pairs it with something fascinating that he says about why we exist. So that's what I want to look look at uh, this morning. Ephesians 2, we're going to be in verse 4. This may sound somewhat familiar. Paul says, but because of his great love for us, God, who's rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you've been saved. God raised us up with Christ, seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it's by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. Pause right there. He's saying a lot of really beautiful things. You realize he's mentioned Christ Jesus a handful of times in this passage. Uh, What he's really saying, if I could sum it up, is this. The entirety of the experiment of Christianity is about one thing, what God has accomplished through Christ Jesus. That is what it's about. That and only that. Nothing matters more than that. That work, what Christ Jesus accomplished, was the point of the whole story— right? It's the center of all of it. It is free. It is a gift. We were dead, but because Jesus came, as soon as we believe, we become alive. And he goes to great lengths to point this out. It has nothing to do with what we do. So Christianity, as it turns out, is not about becoming a good person. That's not what it's about. There's lots of good people in the world that aren't Christians. Christianity is not about becoming a good person. It is about the work of Christ Jesus, It also is not about believing all the right things. Christianity is not about good theology. It is about the work of Christ Jesus. That is what it's about. It is about reaching out in hope and faith to God and discovering that He has already reached back to us through Jesus Christ. and It is the best news in the history of news. You know, it is the most accessible thing, the most beautiful truth. Um, You know, really, I'd say it this way. If you were to sum up the center of our faith, certainly this is true biblically. If you were to sum up in Scripture the center of our faith, this also is true, though, in the early church. What the apostles died for, what they defended with their lives, what Scripture teaches us, the center of our faith is this and only this. Jesus is fully God, Jesus is fully human, and Jesus is fully sufficient for salvation. That's the center ring of our faith. That's the core of all of it. And faith in that plus nothing transforms everything. It saves us, it redeems us, it makes us new people. Here's where we get tripped up. We have to understand this. The Bible talks about a lot of subjects. I don't know if you've cracked that thing open recently, but there's a lot going on there, right? There's all sorts of stuff that it talks about. The problem comes when we take some of those subjects in the Bible and we cram them into the center along with Jesus. And what we wind up getting is a bastardized version of the faith that does not reflect the real thing. Jesus and only Jesus can occupy the center, Now, I may not be saying something that you don't know, but I think one of the things that it means for us, and one of the things that's true of this church and has been for years is like we are holding really tightly to that center, and you will note we hold a lot looser to everything else. It's been true for years, and I think this is a point where sometimes people get confused and frustrated, and they're like, why aren't you fired up about that issue? Why aren't you speaking out about that thing or this thing or that thing? And it's not that we don't care about those issues. It's just that we care about the center of biblical Christianity more. So we spend a little bit more time there, a lot more time there. We're constantly trying to resist the urge that we have seen in American churches to add things to the center of Jesus Christ right? That's what we're trying to do because we believe it's that important. Jesus and only Jesus is the center of the faith. That's that's our first value. Here's our second. Look at what Paul does. He's talking about the centrality of Christ. And what is the next verse? Verse 10. Paul says, for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So, Faith in Jesus, 100%, center of the faith, center of the whole thing. But after we have faith in Jesus, what comes next? Paul points this out, this realization. God has recreated us through Christ Jesus for a purpose. It's not just for happenstance. It's not just to prove a point, look, I'm God, I can do it. It was for a specific purpose. And long before you and I ever found faith in Jesus Christ, God was preparing something for us. And when we found faith in Jesus Christ, it's not like God's like, oh gosh, I didn't expect that. Let me uh, see if there's something for you to do around here. No, no, no. He, He knew it was coming, right? He knew we were gonna find faith in Jesus. He was the one who drew us to Jesus after all. And so he was prepared for that moment when we would. And what was he prepared with? Good works. Things that he wants to invite us into that are related to his plan to redeem everything. And if you look, if you go back to the beginning, this was the plan all along. Look at Genesis. What God created in us as humans was partners and friends to steward all creation with Him, right? But because our sin disrupts that and kills us, by grace, He sends Jesus and recreates us through Jesus. Why? So that we could step back into our original destiny. That's the point of the Christian life. The good works that we do, they have nothing to do with being saved, They have nothing to do with being a good person. Our good works have everything to do with God reclaiming in us our humanity that we lost and reestablishing with us that we are friends of God, steward in creation with Him. theologian I think highly of, uh, N.T. Wright, he said it better than I ever could. He says it this way, I like this. Jesus died for our sins, not so that we could sort out abstract ideas, so that we, having been put right, could become part of God's plan to put His whole world right. That's how the revolution works. You know, we're serious about joining God's kingdom plan at Pulver Rock. Like, like we take that really seriously. Um, and I think this, is, this sometimes can be a point of confusion. Um, Occasionally we get this feedback and I try you know, this is legitimate. People say, you're so focused on things outside the walls of this church. What about taking care of the sheep? Um, and, I, and gosh, man, we need to take care of one another and, and we always, always, always can grow in that and we're trying to grow in that every year. Uh, but also, do you know what's a really good way to take care of God's people? Help them discover the kingdom work that God has prepared for before they ever found faith for them to do. And one of the concerns that I have just as a pastor in this country is that too often in churches, spiritual maturity has been defined by spiritual disciplines. And I read the Bible, that's just not in there, right? That is not how Jesus defined spiritual maturity. He didn't define spiritual maturity as devotion to God. He defined it as loving your neighbor. Right? He defined it as joining the work that he prepared in advance for you to do. And so you will note about our church, we're probably a little obsessed with kind of this kingdom revolution thing. (laughs) Yay. Yay. So we pair those two things together. They summarize so much about our approach to theology, what we believe about God. Jesus is everything, and after we find Jesus, we want to participate in the advancement of His kingdom. Now, those two values uh, have really shaped us through the years, and you will encounter them here, and I think, uh, like, you you may not always encounter them verbally in the way I've just described them, but you're going to feel them here, and I want to just describe a little bit of what it feels like. Uh, when you encounter those values. One of the things that it will feel like is this. Uh, You will feel that there is a generosity about faith at Pulpit Rock. You know, we believe Jesus is the sinner. We see in Scripture, Jesus is actually more accessible than you could ever imagine, almost scandalously accessible, right? And so, As a church, we don't really feel all that motivated to constantly identify who's in, who's out, and all that sort of, we're just trusting him. He said he's gonna draw all people to himself. We believe that that was true. He's drawing all people to himself, and we're trusting him with some of that stuff. So that means we talk a lot more about his grace um, than ever we will talk about judgment in hell. If you really wanna hear me talk about judgment in hell, I believe in those things, and I'll tell you privately all of the judgment in hell stuff you wanna hear. We talk more about grace here, not because we don't believe in judgment and hell, but because we actually believe Jesus is the solution to all that stuff. He's the point, and so we're going to spend more time there. You'll note this, we have a fairly high capacity for diversity of opinion on doctrine at Pulpit Rock. It's not because we don't care about doctrine. I have strong opinions about all sorts of doctrinal things. We just have a low desire to make everyone at Pulpit Rock here think the same thing maybe this is naive, but we honestly believe this. Like, if, if we have faith in Jesus in common, and if we're both focused on the kingdom, then we can walk together. You know? Uh, most of what splits churches is not those two things. And so we feel like if we have faith in Jesus and we, we're focused on the kingdom, we can walk together. I know that's a little unique, because I know that uh, a lot of churches are expending a lot of effort to make sure everyone believes the same thing in their church. Um, And I think, you know, benefit of the doubt, I think that that goal is because we sometimes think, well, if we all believe the same thing, then we would have unity. I I know that sounds like it makes sense. I think it's actually not true, right? I think it actually works the other way. What makes God's church unified, and by the way, faithful and orthodox, what makes God's church unified, faithful, and orthodox is not hammering out every doctrinal detail, but it is staying focused on the center. Staying humble about the doctrinal details. That's how you get unity in the church, not by answering every little question, but by answering the one big question correctly again and again and again and again. again. Here's something else you might feel. If you walk with us for a while, um, you know, we're real focused on joining God's work in the world, and you might feel this. Uh, we're not trying real hard to be a successful church. Um, we're, we're trying real hard to participate in God's kingdom. And I want to tell you some of my journey on this. I've been a pastor for about 20 years, um, two decades, right? So I've spent probably way more time than I should have thinking about the question of how do you become a successful church? And that's kind of the job, figure that one out. Um, and I'd go to conferences, I'd study people who were successful churches, and a few years ago, something started happening. It was deeply concerning and troubling to me as I started seeing many successful churches that I had studied and listened to and thought, oh, they really have this thing figured out, have catastrophic falls from grace. And I I think it was the Holy Spirit um, that eventually said this to my heart, and I was like, oh, But I I think the Holy Spirit eventually said something to me that is really important. He said, You can actually, in America, be a successful church and have nothing to do with the kingdom of God. And before he said that, like my prayer was, God, make us successful. Make us a successful church. After he said that, like I, I felt fear. Like I was like, God, please do not let us be a successful church that has nothing to do with your kingdom. Um, because that is a real risk. I, it doesn't make sense how it should happen, but it, it happens. And so we are kind of trying to abandon the idea of being a successful church or trade it in for just participating in God's kingdom. This is not a platitude when I say this. I really do believe this in, in my core of who I am. The best thing about Pulpit Rock is not what happens on Sunday morning. Um, and you might be sitting there saying, yeah, no joke, I'm here. Um, but... Uh, <laughs> I mean, even if it was like the best Sunday morning ever, right? It's still, the best thing about Pulpit Rock would not be what happens on Sunday morning. The best thing about Pulpit Rock is the good kingdom work that you all are doing during the week, right? It, I want us never to forget that. Years from now, the legacy of this church will not be our spectacular Sunday gathering. It won't be my great preaching or the amazing worship or our great building and all the stuff that happened there. The legacy of this church will be defined by our faith in Jesus and by the ways that we step into the good work that God prepared in advance for us to do. I think that's actually true of every church. Um, I think that's how you evaluate churches. It's not by Sunday, but by the week. Uh, We're really trying to embrace that here and walk in it. Faith in Jesus, joining God's kingdom work, that's what God looks like, or that's what God looks at, and theologically, that's where we're trying to focus. Let me hit you with one more thing that I think you'll feel. This is something I'm passionate about. This is a challenge for us. Faith in Jesus presumes humility. Joining God's work in the world means He gets to define what that looks like, right? Right? We don't get to define it. Our choice is just we get to choose whether or not we're going to participate in it. Look at Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2.10. That's what Paul's saying. He prepared it before we ever even knew about him. He prepared it in advance. So he defines it. And he defines his work again and again and again in Scripture as a work of humble, sacrificial love. That is his work. I mean, listen to his words. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. Look at the Old Testament. Administer true justice. Show mercy, compassion to one another. That's how he talks about his mission on earth. Like, we don't have to like those things. We don't have to uh, do any of those things. If we don't want to be merciful and compassionate to all people, we don't have to. But we don't get to change them. He's already prescribed them. God's kingdom work is already defined. It is treating every person created in the image of God as if they are valuable and loved by Him because indeed they are, right? That is the work. Doesn't matter if we don't like them, They're valuable and they're loved by God. It doesn't matter if we find their lives objectionable. It doesn't matter. They're valuable and they're loved by God. It doesn't matter if we think of them as our own personal enemy. They're valuable and they're loved by God. And that and only that is the work that He's prepared in advance for us to do. And so what we're looking for in humility is just how do we leverage our lives for that work that He's defined. This is the deal. As Christians... We don't get to be antagonistic with the world. We don't. That's not the work. We don't get to just fight for our rights. I mean, we clearly do get to do those two things, but when we do those two things, we have abandoned the work of God that He has prepared, and we're doing our own work, okay? So in humility, we think this. uh, This work of humble, sacrificial love That's the point, keeping Jesus as the center, that's the focus, and when we do that, it will transform everything, our world, our city, even us. Now, you might have had this thought while I'm talking about this stuff, like that seems a little simplistic, Jonathan, maybe you've drawn the circle too tight. Just focus on Jesus and the kingdom work of loving others, that's it? Um, That's a bit reductionist for our complex world, isn't it? Don't we have to do more than that? Um, Lest you think that I'm being reductionist, let me hit you with a story from church history. I know what you're saying, Jonathan, we love church history. Um, I know, that's why I'm telling you the story. Do you know about Julian the Apostate? Have you ever heard that name, Julian the Apostate? Okay, so here's the story. Jesus died, rose again, uh, early 30s AD, as near as we can tell, and he ascends into heaven, leaving behind maybe 150 followers. That's it. That's all he left behind. For the next 300 years, those followers grow and expand, uh, and they were focused on just a very few things. They didn't have so many things that we have, like they didn't have a Bible to argue about, they didn't have seminaries, they didn't have property for a church building or to meet in, they didn't have many rights, they really didn't even have. Have the favor of society or government. In the Greek and the Roman world, um, Christians were perceived as atheists. And I know that sounds kind of weird because we're like, no, we're the ones who believe in God. But to the Roman perspective, they looked at these Christians and they're like, listen, for thousands of years we've believed in the gods, and you're saying none of them exist? You're atheists. Uh, because this idea of monotheism had not yet really caught on. Um, so they didn't have many of the things that we have, but the one thing they did have was focus. They were deeply focused, go back and read the creeds, they were deeply focused on the person of Jesus. Fully God, fully human, fully sufficient, for salvation. And they were deeply focused on doing the good work of the kingdom of God, treating every human, even those that persecuted them, as if they were made in the image of God and worthy of love. And they did this in dramatic ways. Like Christians would move into plague cities that were like, like everyone was infected with the plague and Christians would move in. They're like, we just want to take care of you in your last few minutes here on earth. And then the Christians died too, because that's how diseases work. Um, Like that's a huge sacrifice. Like what an of the kingdom. They also would do small things. History tells us this, that it was the Christians who for the first time in history, at least in the Roman world, in the Greek world, started putting women's names on tombstones. Um, And they just were like, she had a name, let's put it on her tombstone. Um, How small is that? But it was like big things and it was small things like that that Christians were doing and they were just focused on that. So they had Jesus and they had kingdom work of love and dignity for every human for about 300 years. In 300 years, they went from the small group of rejected uh, people in Palestine to overtaking and infesting the entire known world of the Roman Empire. And even in 306 AD, the first Christian sat on the throne in Rome, Emperor Constantine. When he converted to Christianity, um, he led sweeping reforms created religious freedom for really for everyone but especially for Christians it made space for them and for the first time because of emperor constantine christians didn't have to live in fear anymore it was a pretty big turnaround from where they were in 30 AD Now, Constantine reigns as emperor for 31 years. He dies. Next few emperors, they mostly did the same sort of stuff. Until 361 AD, a man named Julian takes the throne of the empire in Rome, also known as Julian the Apostate, which is a pretty cool name. Um, Julian's not a Christian. He's a pagan. He only reigns for two years. But during that time, he sets out the top thing on his political agenda was to reverse everything Constantine had done for Christians. He wants to change all the laws, take away all the rights of Christians, and he sets out to return the Roman Empire to the worship of the pagan gods. He hated us Christians. He blamed us for all the problems in Rome. He's like, we've neglected the gods. That's why they're so angry at us and things aren't going well. And so he's trying to return Rome to the worship of the pagan gods. He's changing all of the laws, but he knew he had to do more than rewrite the laws. He had to win the hearts of people to the worship of the pagan gods. And so he sets out to do that. He starts working with pagan priests, giving them uh, tremendous power, trying to restore pagan worship. And what's fascinating to me is the comments that Julian makes about us as a people in this time. He watched Christianity become so successful in the empire and he'd learned from the story of our ancestors. And he started theorizing about, here's what I think is happening. Consider this quote. This is from a letter he wrote to the director of pagan priests. This from a man who hates us. For when it came about that the poor were neglected and overlooked by the pagan priests, then I think the impious Galileans, that's his name for Christians, the impious Galileans observed this fact and devoted themselves to philanthropy. The Galileans also begin with their so-called love feast or hospitality of service of tables, and the result is that they've led very many into atheism or Christianity. So here's the observation of a man who hates us, who's trying to undo everything that we have done. He says, these people They take care of the poor that we neglect and they invite anyone who's hungry to their table for the love feast, which is communion, right? It was a bigger deal back then and it was a whole meal. And he's like, they'll just, like they'll eat with anyone and they'll take care of everyone. It is so annoying and that's why everyone keeps joining them. Interesting assessment, right? Like just think about in our day the people who hate us the most? How would they describe us? I mean, can you imagine if they're like, ugh, those Christians are the worst. Pulpit Rock is the worst. All they do is like take care of everybody and they'll eat with anyone as if everyone is valuable. I hate them. Julian, watch this. He learned from it. He hated it, but he could not argue with its effectiveness, and so he tried to steal the idea. Listen to this letter. He wrote, his actual letter, he wrote to the high priest of the pagan temple in Galatia. He says, Why do we not observe that it is Christians benevolence to strangers, their care for the graves of the dead, and their pretended holiness of their lives that have done the most to increase atheism? I believe that we ought really and truly to practice every one of these virtues, and it's not enough for you alone to practice them, but so must all the priests in Galatia, without exception, Either shame or persuade them into righteousness, or else remove them from their priestly office. Now, I know, uh, as major fans of church history, you've probably read this before, but like, this is mind boggling, right? <laughs> This is the the person on earth who hates us most and wants to convince everyone to reject Christianity and embrace his religion. Here is his solution. We're going to force all the pagan priests to start taking care of strangers and the poor, and they're going to practice benevolent love or else we're going to fire them. That's his solution. Shame them or persuade them or fire them. That's what he, like, we're going to, we've got to beat these Christians at their own game, is what he's saying. And he actually started writing into law that pagan temples had to become places of charity. Now, it never worked. He died and it it stopped there. But uh, he saw this. There's only one way to compete with these Christians who are so focused in living out these values of the kingdom. They have to beat it with their own game. It was the simple focus of Christians. Jesus is the center, kingdom work. No one could stop it. And even the people who hated us the most saw it's unstoppable. Our only choice is to compete and to imitate. That's how powerful it is when we as God's people stay focused on what matters most and not add a whole bunch of stuff to that. And I wonder if we just look at where we're at in America... I wonder if maybe we've overcomplicated it. Maybe some churches have overcomplicated it a bit. And I know some might say, it's naive, just focus on Jesus and kingdom, work of love. I mean, there's so many complexities in our world we have to navigate, right? It's too, too narrow. I, like, don't we have to have an answer for all these things? Don't we have to win arguments about doctrine and belief? Don't we have to grow big, powerful churches? Don't we have to get power in society so we can fix society? Isn't that how it works? Don't we have to fight for our rights? Honestly? Honestly? No. We don't have to do any of that stuff. And if you would look at our history, you would discover that none of that stuff has ever borne any fruit anyway. It's a waste of our time. Julian the apostate was right. What has made our movement work, what has worked before, the only thing that's worked before and the only thing that will work again, Jesus, just Jesus, faith in that alone and kingdom work of love. It was enough and it's still enough. So God, we come to you today confessing just how complicated we can make it. Confessing how convoluted it seems like it becomes in our hands and inviting you to strip away all of those things that we would add to the core until just Jesus remains. Inviting you to communicate to us the work that you've prepared for us so that we can join it, so that we can participate with you in it. God, we trust that the original plan was good enough. Even 1,700 years later, it still is good enough. And as a church, God, we commit to walking with you in it. We trust you, Lord, in Jesus' name.